Welcome to the U.S. National Privacy Legislation Podcast. This is Joy Mason and Triago, Managing Director of the Association for Data and Cyber Governance. We are the only professional association that combines all aspects of data and cyber governance for the governance, risk, and compliance professional. You can find us online at adcg.org. It gives us great pleasure to host this event led by two outstanding moderators, Jerry Buckley and Jody Westby. Jerry is a founder of Buckley LLP, a national financial services law firm based in Washington, D.C. Prior to entering private practice, he served as minority staff director of the U.S. Senate Banking Committee. Jody is CEO of Global Cyber Risk LLC and chairs the American Bar Association's Privacy and Computer Crime Committee. We have some really great guests lined up today and in the future, so please be sure to rate us and subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode. This is Jerry Buckley, and I am here with my colleague Jody Westby in a continuation of our podcast series on the prospects for national privacy legislation. We are joined today by Carlos Solari. After a career in military service in the Army, Carlos served as senior executive in the FBI in the 1990s and as chief information officer, CIO, at the White House from 2003 to 2005. His private sector career includes leadership in cybersecurity in Bell Labs and at CSC. He is currently vice president of product engineering at SecureGenius and chairs the advisory board of the Association for Data and Cyber Governance. Today, we are going to widen the lens and try to look around the corner at how data analytics and technology advances are likely to shape data privacy and security law in the rapidly changing data governance environment. And few are better qualified to offer insights on these trends than our guest today. So let's get started. Carlos, let's start by talking a little about your current work. I am sure our audience would like to hear about the project that you've decided to devote your considerable talents to. Carlos? Thank you, uh, Jerry. And um, to some extent, it's a capstone to a career that began when uh, our communications was uh, still very strictly analog. And you know, we were, we in the Army, United States Army, were putting together, deploying multi-channel communications with frequency division as a way to keep uh, channels separate from each other. And now we're at the brink of really dealing with what, what is uh, in front of us with 5G. And what are the security implications of, of that as well? So it is a bit of a, of a capstone to a long career that began with analog communication systems. And we've seen everything from you know, moving away from a large mainframe operations for computers to local area networks, to connecting up local area networks over a wide area network, seeing how expensive that was, and then realizing that there was this thing we could talk about, which is to reinvent the data center, but let's call it a cloud, and concentrate and share platforms, share infrastructure in a way that we see today, now evolving to mobile cloud-centric kind of operations. And so the company that I'm with now, SecureG, is very much focused on how 
we apply security in this 5G. And the interesting thing about this notion of 5G is that it would imply that there's sort of this natural evolution of one, two, three, four, 5G. Reality is that 5G is radically different. Um, it's less an evolution and more of a revolution, if I can, if I can use that term, in terms of how uh, communications is done. Everything is turned into software. Um, and but the potential of what how it can be applied into use cases that deal with this world of cyber physical systems is what so makes it so different. So uh, you know, so different from the past generations of systems. And the security also has to be very different in order to to work in the speed and the scale that five G promises uh, to deliver. And when we talk about five G, there are future generations that will come over the years: six G, seven G. Uh, that will continue this uh, very different uh, divergent path that we're now taking with uh, communications that is intended to be uh, for enabling machines to talk to other machines, machine-to-machine communications, again, at speed and scale that we've never been able to achieve before. So that's where I'm working now with SecureG, and um, it is a capstone to a long career. Fascinating. We could probably spend uh, several podcasts on that subject alone, but thank you for that encapsulated version of, and what a fascinating career you've had. What a great opportunity to watch. It's kind of like uh, watching the Wright brothers and then seeing a, a landing on the moon. So it's really great. Carlos, could you set the stage for us by describing how you see the evolution of data analytic capabilities? impacting consumers and businesses in the United States and around the globe. You've suggested that we are witnessing the end of thought independence. What do you mean by that? I have, and I would organize it to start by saying that uh, let's look at the progression of what's happening. And this is almost, I would say, irrefutable in terms of what's happening. The impact we can argue about and have a conversation about, but in terms of the fact that we are, our identities are digital. You know, where in the past it took a, a lifetime to build a reputation. A reputation is so much a reflection of what uh, is being collected. And so we have a very real digital identity that is the basis for where we go to school, what work we can do, what kind of insurance we can get, what kind of mortgage rates we can get. So it's, uh, I don't think anybody would argue the fact that more and more of our identity and including obviously our, our reputations is digital. And how we deal with that is increasingly important. But the next point of the progression is that we've already seen, uh, I don't think it takes any kind of big thinking to understand what happens with when all that information is, is available because we see it in how we are advertised. We are not advertised in the general. We are advertised in the specific because the habits of where we visit in terms of websites, where we buy things, uh, is being captured in, in, in incredible detail you know, who we speak to on the phone, you know, what locations we go to, all this data that is being that is being captured. And we willingly say, yes, I'm willing to accept the terms of privacy here because of the utility of the benefits that we get there. But we often are not really aware of the incremental price we're paying and how in the aggregate it builds up to something that we that can be quite quite dangerous, as I'll talk about in a moment. So from digital identity to digital profiling, so I think we're now in the age of all that power of data in the hands of organizations could create this notion of digital conformance. 
where um, if we don't behave in the way that's expected, if we say the wrong things, we could be, let's say, put into a box where the insurance that we thought was going to cost us this amount is suddenly increased or denied to us. And we don't really know why. We can obviously think about the, the dangers of health information used in the wrong way. But there's all kinds of other ways in which uh, we can find ourselves in sort of this progression of a world where there's a lot of digital conformance in order for us to operate and, and live and, and work and play all the things that we do, even in family life, that is this progression that I'm talking about. The impacts are really that you can't be anonymous anymore. And there's a repercussion to that. At a personal level, as I talked about a moment ago, it could be the, the difference between whether you are paying insurance at one price versus another, or even denied insurance and you have really no reason uh, to, to know why. Because the databases that are used are you know, using their, their power with the power of artificial intelligence to make a decision uh, that has to do with an aggregate of data that is just uh, amazingly complex that is profiling you in a way that allows them to, to determine risk on whether you can you know, qualify for, for things. Um, again, uh, another example that we've been talking about is mortgage rates, but those are practical things that affect our, our daily lives. The one that most concerns me is what happens at a strategic level when you know, the, the notion of these uh, things that, that we've leaned on in the past in terms of our anonymity, our ability to speak uh, with the expectation that, that we uh, are not being uh, forced into some kind of conformance uh, can have an impact uh, on things like democracy and things like how we are able to innovate and, and uh, you know, work on those borders, establish new businesses, really operate with the kind of freedoms that we've enjoyed and certainly in my generation. And so it's a, it's a concern for our future that I, that I think is, uh, is what I'm thinking about when I'm talking about the end of independence, because it's this progression and its impacts of what can happen. Wow, this is Jody Carlos. Thanks for being with us today. That's really insightful. And listening to you talk and thinking about, I've heard Jerry call it a digital persona before, which I really like that term. It's very interesting because our reputations, as you talked about, based on our years of work and that we've carefully developed over time, if algorithms are determining this, then if the data changes, the algorithm could change the answer. And maybe what the algorithm comes up with isn't really us. So I, I love this thinking about the end of um, thought independence, because maybe our digital persona is different than what we may even be thinking. So data analytics, though, are also being driven by these IoT, Internet of Things devices. There are billions of them connected to networks and devices and appliances and even clothing now. And they often transmit data insecurely. They can be so small that they can't accommodate encryption. Most of them don't have any terms of service or consent associated with them. They're just deployed. And in my experience, many CISOs don't even know that these devices are on their networks. But it, ra it raises a lot of privacy and cybersecurity concerns. But staying with the data analytics for an another moment, it also raises issues about the end of the importance of PII about people. What are your thoughts on that? Thanks, Jody. Uh, you know, I've, I've, I'd like to, to use that 
little phrase, the end of the importance of PII, or in its more radical version, the end of PII as a way to sort of to get attention. Because, you know, PII or personal identifiable information is a beginning point. And back when, you know, we, uh, we when I was a part of the U.S. federal government, started talking about uh, privacy as a sort of a separate uh, discipline. Those of us who were raised more in the traditional confidentiality, integrity, and availability thought that we had, you know, that privacy thing covered. And little did we really uh, realize that, uh, no, we didn't, that we really ought to think of it as its own uh, discipline because confidentiality is is closer, uh, you know, aligned with uh, cybersecurity than it is about the the notion of uh, how things are being used today. And as you say, we are now getting to the point where it's not simply those PII uh, data artifacts like social security number, date of birth, your name, that are being used, but it's all the the confluence of all these uh, sensors that are collecting data that we don't even know about. And we're doing it for reasons of sometimes uh, safety, sometimes for even concerns over, over health. We're seeing you know, what's been happening in, in parts of the world, including here in the United States around COVID-19. Collecting this kind of data, and once it's collected and collected in these massive volumes, the aggregate of all that data to paint us into this notion of, of the digital persona or our digital profile is so incredibly powerful that we don't really need to add any more PII elements in our regulations because it's not so much you know those data elements like social security numbers or you know where were you born or you know what is your gender even when you bring in all this collection of, of data there's a profile of you that is in, intensely rich and, and capable in the, in the wrong hands of being used in ways that we had n- never foreseen. I've talked already about the impact of what that can be, both at a personal level, around insurance, around you know, banking, finance, all those kinds of things. We don't need to theorize about what can happen when those impacts are, are, are manifest by governments that are autocratic. We just need to look uh, across at other shores and see exactly you know, how that's being applied. So if we cherish these freedoms that we have and we cherish the democracy that allows us to be a government um, by the people and for the people, then we need to really start paying attention to what is happening with all this combination of artificial intelligence, big data collection of IoT devices that are pumping incredible information around geolocation, around other things that sensors pick up. And the importance of PII is that it remains important, surely. But it's not not the absolute form of what's creating our, our digital persona. It's really a combination of all that data. So there's identification, perhaps even with no PII gathered. But, you know, if we want to boil it down to a, a simple sentence, you don't need hardly the PII. They know everything about us. Who they is 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 indeterminate. Everything about us is how this game gets played. And it, it hardly matters that you haven't given up your you know, social security number or, or, or this PII data because all the other aggregate data will paint you exactly as uh, uh, into your digital profile as, as needed without even needing to give consent. Who was that guy who was the former CEO of Netscape, Jim, somebody, and, yeah. and he said, you have no privacy, get over it. And maybe it's the <laughs> privacy. 
I remember the the statement. I don't remember the name, but yeah, you you know you don't have any privacy. Get over it, and uh, and that's a statement of the same kind of thing. But the, the get over it is I'm not getting over it. I think we need to fight to uh, to protect our privacy. Right, Jim Barksdale. That's right. Well, so you have had a ringside seat in our as our digital world evolved. It'd be fair to say that you've been in the ring right up next to the lions and the tigers. Now you're still in that arena. What do you see as the role of technology in managing these issues? Can technology help promote benevolent uses of data and help curb some of the more disturbing aspects that rankle privacy experts and individuals? It can, I think. We start there. Um, but, you know, it's, we're finding ourselves where we're supposed to write policy that helps uh, control the technology, but we're finding ourselves uh, belatedly writing policy to help, you know, control our, our policy in, in a way that isn't keeping up. The pace at which technology is changing, if we can, if we can say, is, is going even beyond Moore's law. And the degree to which we're sort of uh, trying to figure out through the legislatures of how, how do we deal with this is that um, is really uh, operating at such different uh, degrees of uh, a pace that changes uh, uh, so quickly and it is so different that we find ourselves sort of trying to grapple with, do we stop this technology, which we really can't? Do we try to reapply it in ways that are beneficial to us to actually uh, give us uh, the tools that are needed to to control this. And I think there's a lot of promise there. So we lean on this notion of security by design and privacy by design to help us believe that we can. But those are nice principles that require a lot of action to follow them up, not only good policy to support, uh, you know, to, to, to give them the backbone and to give them the governance rules that are needed there, but also to ensure that uh, we, we apply at the earliest point in the creation of technology, the principles that allow us to ensure that we can try and stay in, in front of and in control of this technology that is changing so quickly. So privacy by design as a principle, I think is one that, uh, that will help guide the creation of the technologies that are needed to temper uh, the uses that uh, left left uh, out of control or left without some kind of governance will will do us harm and great harm. And, and I've, I've talked to some of it, uh, examples of what happens at a personal level, but those uh, pale in comparison to what can happen if we lose our freedoms that allow us to have the kind of democracies that, uh, that we've enjoyed so far. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Carlos, as you were talking, I was thinking privacy by design, but who is going to do the design? And yeah. I think that's going to be a crucial decision we are, we're, we're going to have to make as a society. And I would like to ask you, in following on that, about the government's role. This is coming down to a more from the philosophical level, which we've been on, which I think is the which is a, an enormous contribution to our discussion, to what's happening now. Uh, and and I'd like to ask you about data protection authorities, or, or sometimes called DPAs. The newly passed California Privacy Rights Act, which becomes effective on January 1st, 2023, requires California to establish a DPA, and every country in Europe also has one. And what, in your view, is the effectiveness and what are your thoughts on DPAs and what role they might play in helping shape the design of privacy by design? 
short answer is we need them here in the same manner that you know it's been determined that they're needed in places like in like in Europe and in you know the state of California. We need them um, in, in not just in one state. We need them across uh, the, the country. Those the, that role in some way that is uh, uniformly applied across uh, all the 50 states, I think is important so that we you know, don't become more fractured than we are, are already. So I think that's, the, uh, you know, that's the, the starting point for the answer to that question. I also, you know, I'm gonna divert a little bit to talk about the importance of our education system, particularly where it's creating all the engineers um, that are creating all this wonderful technology that the, the notion of privacy by, by design, security by design, should be taught at the engineering schools as part of the curriculum so that we don't end up trying to fix the problem later because it's too massive to fix it later. So these principles need to be embodied. They need to become part of the culture. They need to become uh, almost become part of the Hippocratic oath of, you know, not only do no harm, but but don't don't create systems that we can't control because they're rampant with privacy violations. So I think that's where it begins. And the second thing is to to architect things um, because too often the legislation is sort of a reaction to the latest crisis that we had. And then we forget that if we go too far, we impact other important critical aspects of what we do. So privacy is critically important, but so is national security. And if we don't uh, do this correctly, we will uh, we will harm one or the other if we if one is uh, overly strong uh, to the other. And we don't have to theorize about what can happen there. We saw what uh, what happened certainly for those who were uh, around in 9/11 and were of an age that could understand to what had happened in the aftermath in terms of the discovery of where our intelligence and law enforcement systems failed. But then the reaction afterwards in, in which there were decisions made about the collection of data uh, at a massive scale that uh, was really, you know, we, later we've determined uh, was not only unwarranted, but uh, so contrary to, you know, the, the principles of, of, of this country and how it's founded and the principles of democracy. So I think that government has a role, but it needs to arch- take its time to architect something that will last to think about how we not only write a law and then it's a dictate thinking that it's going to just uh, be adopted, but also think about how you uh, implement it, uh, starting with teaching it in, in, the, in the right places and following up with that with the kind of enforcement that allows us to, uh, to do it right. And uh, I guess, unfortunately, too often what we find is the opposite of that. So we create laws and then see what kind of ramifications and consequences those laws create. And, and here we can, we can get it very wrong. If you go back to my career that, I was, uh, th- that I've uh, spent over you know, almost 40 years in military law enforcement at the federal level and at the White House, you know, in the private sector, I've seen what can happen, you know, certainly when law enforcement is hampered, it can't do its job, it doesn't have the right kinds of tools. So there needs to be a good balance there and architecting the, the laws that allow these DPAs to have the proper platform, but that, that it's balanced with the other interests of the country as well. And speaking of that, we hear a lot about the idea of a data bill of rights. There's several that have emerged. You know, one during the President Obama's administration, there was a consumer uh, privacy bill of rights. In February of this year, Governor Cuomo who's had some other uh, publicity recently, (laughs) 
put forth uh, a proposal for a consumer privacy bill of rights in New York, and some UN groups have developed statements on digital rights, including privacy and freedom of expression. Do these have any effect on companies who are making decisions about who to hire, who to do business with, and how to treat their employees based on data analytics? Oh, no, no doubt. I, I think the devil's in the details within these uh, Bill of Rights, but I think they're essential. And I, I go back to the same thing that I was speaking about there. Essential, but they need to be architected the right way. We, we don't want to create an imbalance between the needs of national security, of law enforcement, of our intelligence community, and put our, our country at the potential for, for others, adversaries, to, uh, to use those laws against us. So we do need to be mindful of that. But I think you know, uh, on the whole, the, the creation of the DPA role as a as the kind of authority to oversee these activities um, you know, need to be given the kinds of tools. And they're not. I'm not just talking about technology tools. I'm talking about the tools of the law that a Bill of Rights would would provide the, the kind of strength that's needed. I think that's absolutely necessary um, if we're going to again, you know, protect this privacy. That is so essential because it's fundamental. It's one of the pillars of why we have the the freedoms that we have uh, today. And I keep harping on that because uh, I think it's slipping away from us if we don't act quickly in putting in place the kind of uh, controls that are needed. So, Carlos, let me ask you, do you think it's possible to develop a national or ultimately an international consensus on how data should be treated and particularly what rights individuals well, or even companies, may have over data that's about them, even if the data was not obtained from them? You think we could ever get to some harmonized approach nationally or internationally? We can, but I don't I have no, uh, you know, I don't, I'm not sure that it's being cynical to say that it's not going to happen internationally, because there's too many countries that we see already that, uh, that twist the language or t- twist the intent in ways that are, you know, serve their own political interests that are completely contrary to, to the principles that we're talking about here. But I would say the uh, sort of the coalition of uh, the countries who believe on and cherish these freedoms um, is a good starting point. I think it, uh, it can be a good counterbalance to those other kinds of countries. And I think we ought to start here on our own soil, get our act together. It's not an impossible thing to go do. Um, so I think it's uh, it's where we should uh, begin. And and not just hand over the leadership of a lot of these topics over to, uh, to to Europe. I think it's fantastic that they've done what they've done. I think maybe they have um, uh, maybe gone overboard in their legislation, but I commend you know the GDPR efforts. I think they are needed, and I you know we we need to uh, in our own shores look to provide that same kind of leadership that's coming from some places on how to uh, put in place not only the DPA but the Bill of Rights and to look at. Uh, what's happening with IoT? I think there is legislation already starting to happen around the fact that you just can't produce this $5 widget that creates all kinds of potential impacts when they're deployed in the tens of thousands to eat up bandwidth or to uh, to be compromised in ways that are that uh, you know will, will uh, impact uh, our abilities to, to have safe and secure uh, critical infrastructures. So yeah. those are all aspects of what needs to happen. Um, today within our uh, within the, the, the idea of having a national privacy law. Well, you really put your finger on something important when you were talking about countries that twist meaning. And of course, I assume you're referencing there some 
shenanigans that Russia and China have been up to at the United Nations in twisting around what freedom of expression might be or how the government could control the internet or control networks. So I think you also made this another second point, which we need to show leadership. And we need to, if we can get out there as a country, even if we're not completely in sync with the EU, having Western countries come out with these principles and show leadership in the area helps guide the rest of the countries around the world. But if we narrow this discussion now down to our main topic, which is national privacy legislation, do you see these issues we've discussed today impacting the possibility of a national privacy law? I mean, we've really raised some new issues that we haven't talked about before. And could they be a cog in the works and not allow us to have a national privacy law once all these new issues get thrown on the table? Yeah, they are the right issues and we, that we've been talking about. I don't think they are. I, I think they are almost the, the very checklist that I would use to say before we come up with a national privacy law, we ought to be talking about these, um, you know, the different aspects of the topics we, we've been talking about. The need for uh, for national, let's just uh, stop there, is that we don't behave as, you know, 50 different little countries, but we behave as the United States of America. It's, it's just absolute. And I think it's, it's nonsense, uh, you know, what's been happening and to our detriment, what's been happening here. Uh, when we don't behave that that way, it needs to be a law, which means that it has to have all the teeth and the appropriate enforcement, the appropriate understanding behind it uh, that brings in the best that we have from across the country. And I, I keep going back to education because uh, our universities and our uh, what our engineers are learning and uh, all the, the people who are making the technology needs to begin with them. I often use the uh, the explanation that you cannot hire enough cybersecurity specialists to fix the mess that all these engineers are are creating in in their zeal to bring this technology to the marketplace. So we need to begin and putting the responsibility where where, where it starts with is uh, is with uh, the people who create the technology. So the need is there. Um, I think we it's 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 um, it's the time. The time is slipping by, and the leadership is going to be filled somewhere. Uh, at the moment, it continues to be uh, out of Europe, but the United States needs to have a role. It's uh, it's got clout, it's got the might of its history and its uh, and its economy to to bring to bear, and I think it's uh, high time we do that. Carlos, isn't it dumbfounding that this the place where the digital economy was invented has not been able to step forward? And and Jody and I have talked. We we actually have an article we're going to. Uh, submit on some of the reasons why that is the case, but there it is vital that we start to deal with these issues, even if it comes to the point of cataloging the issues and coming to some consensus about them. And so what you've given us today has been uh, so helpful. There's so much more I would like to discuss with you, but our time is is out. But thank you so much for your joining us. This has been a very interesting discussion. And thank you for your leadership of the advisory board of the ADCG, where some of these issues are being discussed. I think ADCG is somewhat unique in that it understands that these governance, these data governance issues, in its broadest sense, in the in the uh, in the legal and regulatory sense of data governance, are uh, crucial to our future. And as the fog of COVID and economic crisis uh, recedes, we hope, hopefully, 
this will move to the front as an important national issue. So thank you again, Carlos. My pleasure, Jody and Jeremy. And uh, maybe I'll, I'll just leave you with one little quote that I, when I heard it the first time, I found it so fascinating uh, as a way to close out on this topic, important topics. And this was uh, September 2013. And the speaker was uh, Dilma Rousseff, uh, the president of Brazil at the time, at the UN General Assembly, when she said, in the absence of the right to privacy, there can be no true freedom of expression and opinion, and therefore no effective democracy. So I think um, brilliant words, and we do need to take them to heart. And then we also need to show respect among the nations, which is the point that she was trying to make. And it's a good way to think about well, the importance of what we need to be doing as a country. So thank you for the opportunity to, to speak to this topic. Thanks again for being with us. Thanks for joining us this week on U.S. National Privacy Legislation. Make sure to visit our website, adcg.org, where you can subscribe to the show in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, Pocket Cast, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in what you heard today, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the podcast, that would help us out too. Also, you might want to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, Data and Cyber Governance Alert, which you can do right on our homepage. Be sure to tune in next week for our next episode, where we dig deeper into the possibilities of U.S. national privacy legislation.